captivity is the condition of being imprisoned or confined. This confinement can be as short as a few hours or as long as a lifetime. Captivity is also very complex. To be held captive doesn't always mean that an individual is locked in a cage or chained to a wall for the duration. Join me this season as I explore cases of captivity and confinement. Follow the podcast on Instagram and TikTok at PropensityPod. Check out extended show notes, images and sources relating to each case on the website propensitypod.com. Propensity is available wherever you get podcasts. You can contact the show by email at propensitypod at gmail.com. New episodes are released every second Tuesday while in season. This first case is very close to my heart and was my very first foray into true crime. If you know me in the real world, you'll know that I'm a little bit of a speed talker and I definitely speak a lot slower while hosting. If episodes are a little on the slow side for you, feel free to listen at 1.3 speed so you get all of the key information quickly and don't lose out on quality. This is how I listen to all of my podcasts. So let's get into the story. This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On a cold March night in 1980, two boys aged 14 and 5 stood outside a Ukiah police station, deciding what to do next. Local police were in the middle of a frenzied investigation into the recent abduction of five-year-old Timmy White. They could scarcely imagine that not one but two missing boys could stumble into their midst and, in the process, solve their own abductions. This is the story of Stephen Stainer. I am your host, Rory Jane McCormick. The theme of this season is captivity. And this is Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast. The weather was wild. It was stormy that night. It was raining heavily. It was a Saturday. The 14-year-old boy looked nervously around the isolated shack. There was no running water or electricity. He had few personal belongings. He looked at his dog Queenie, a small black terrier with tan markings, and said a painful goodbye. Not knowing whether he would ever see her again, he didn't know if he would ever return to this place. He looked at the five-year-old boy with the poorly dyed brown hair, who was waiting patiently for his instruction on what to do next. He had planned this. There was no more time. 
he had calculated that he had a short window on which to exact his escape. And this was it. The two boys made their way to the nearest road. They had no money, no transport and were far from any town. The older boy had surmised that they needed to get to Ukiah, a tiny city almost 63 kilometres away from where they were in Point Arena near Manchester, California. They had to move fast and to put distance between them and anyone who might pursue them. They both knew that there was only one man who would try to find them, and they did not wish to be found. They made their way through the brush for about 400 metres until they hit a road. Two beams of light broke through the darkness in the distance and sped towards them. The older boy thrust his arm out into the road and gave the passing driver a thumbs up. His heart was thumping forcefully in his chest. The driver slowed down and eventually pulled up beside them. Both boys climbed in. The younger boy sat on the teenager's lap for the entire journey. Neither of them spoke a word. The plan was to take the younger boy home, but he didn't know his address or even the name of the street he lived on. The older boy assured him that it was okay and that they would get where they needed to go. They wandered for what seemed like an eternity before happening on the house of a woman who had babysat the boy in the past. They knocked. The house was silent. No one was home. They were running out of options. Finally, they made their way to Seminary Avenue, home of the Ukiah Police Department. The building was long and wide, and the approach resembled an open park with tightly cut grass and trees flanking either side of the building. A road cut through the centre. Keeping a little back from the building, they hesitated apprehensive over how to implement the next stage of their plan. The teenager prompted the younger boy to enter the building and tell a police officer who he was. He assured his young charge that everything would be fine. The boy took a few steps forward and then a few more. He moved towards the building before coming to a standstill. He couldn't bring himself to go all the way inside yet didn't turn back either. He just stood in place, as still as a statue, considering what to do next. The teenager watched from a distance, quietly willing the boy to go inside and do what they had agreed. Before they could formulate the next steps, a police officer, Bob Warner, spotted a child standing alone in the dark. He recognised the boy as the very one that they had been frantically searching for, He'd been missing for the past 16 days. Warner made eye contact with the child and moved towards him. Panicked, the boy ran. Warner followed, determined not to lose him for a second time. When he caught up with him, the boy had run into the arms of a teenager and was clinging tightly to him. Picking the boy up, the older boy turned to Warner and said, This is Timmy. Warner looked at the younger boy and said, Quote, you know, we've been looking for you for a long time. End quote. Timothy White had been missing, presumed abducted since the 13th of February 1980. It was now the 1st of March. Before officers could reunite Timmy with his parents, they first had to figure out what had happened to him. 
where had he been for all of this time? And how did this other, older boy fit into the abduction? Police took statements from both boys. The older boy began his statement with the following words, quote, My name is Stephen Stainer. I am 14 years of age. I don't know my true birth date, but I use April 18th, 1965. I know my first name is Stephen. I'm pretty sure my last is Stainer. And if I have a middle name, I don't know it. End quote. The officers on duty could scarcely believe it. Not one, but two missing boys had walked directly into their midst. Stephen Stainer was abducted in December 1972 at the age of seven. When he presented himself at the police station in Ukiah, he had been missing for almost seven and a half years. His abductor, Kenneth Eugene Parnell, was arrested in the early hours of the next morning. But this story was far from over. Meanwhile, in the city of Merced, Kay Stainer responded to a knock on her front door. A police officer introduced himself and told her that he was here to speak to her about her son. She rolled her eyes, sighed a little, and asked the officer what Carrie had done now. Kay's oldest son, 18-year-old Carrie, liked to push boundaries. No, not Carrie, the officer said. Your other son, Stephen. Kay's blood ran cold. She had hoped for this knock on the door for over seven years, hoping for any lead, any information as to what may have happened to her missing son. In this moment, she felt as if she was about to receive bad news. She had held out hope long after others had abandoned it. But here and now, hope had abandoned her. Her husband, Dell, joined her at the door. The police officer informed them that their son, Stephen, had been found alive and well in Ukiah, and they could see him soon. They wanted to go to their son right away, but were told that it wasn't possible to see him right now. They were told that he was helping the police with their investigation. They were assured that he would be brought to them as soon as possible, and were told to sit tight and wait at home. They had been waiting at home for more than seven years. They were tired of waiting. They wanted answers. Kay and Dell gathered their other children to tell them the astonishing news that their missing brother had been found. The elation within the family unit was palpable. This was everything they had hoped and wished for. They wanted their son and brother home, and this was the closest they had gotten to realizing that dream. The energy was rising in the Stainer house, a nervous mix of anxiety and excitement. But they had been asked to sit on their hands and do nothing. So they waited. They had grown accustomed to waiting. But this time, it was different. To help pass the time until they could be reunited with the brother they had lost so long ago, one of the Stainer children switched the TV on. They were not prepared for what they saw. The screen carried their missing brother's face. Not just a photograph, but the living and breathing embodiment of everything that they had lost. 
He was moving and speaking and carrying little Timmy White on his back. Timmy's arms draped across their brother's shoulders. They had not laid eyes on Stephen since he was seven. Yet here he was, on TV, giving an interview from inside the Ukiah police station. The news media had seemingly been invited in by an unknown party. Both boys displayed a spectacle before the news cameras. It would be the beginning of an entirely new ordeal for Stephen Stainer. The Stainer family once again held their breath, unsure as to what the night would bring to their door. Stephen Stainer was born on the 18th of April 1965 to parents Delbert and Kay Stainer. He was born in Merced, California, a farming town that later became incorporated as a city. Located approximately 180 kilometres from Sacramento, Merced sat in the shadow of Yosemite National Park, 130 kilometres away. Merced was known locally as the gateway to Yosemite, and Yosemite would feature heavily in the lives of the Stainer family in ways that they could hardly imagine. Kay and Dell married in 1960 and began building a family straight away. Stephen was the middle child of five with an older brother Carrie, sister Jody, and two younger sisters, Cindy and Corey. He was known as Steve or Stevie to his family. Dell was a cannery worker and Kay a stay-at-home mother and later daycare worker. The 4th of December 1972 was a Monday. Australian singer Helen Reddy's I Am Woman was the number one song in the United States. Just two days earlier in Shelby County, Alabama, the ground had collapsed to form a spectacular sinkhole. The sinkhole was informally named the December Giant. Lady Sings the Blues, a biopic of the life of Billie Holiday, was the highest grossing film that week. In the small city of Merced, California, Kay Stainer was preparing to collect her son Stephen from school. He was in the second grade at Charles Wright Elementary Mission School. She was running late as she had to pick something up at the store for her husband, Dell. Stephen had left school and begun walking home to the house he shared with his family on Betty Street. It wasn't unusual for him to make his own way home. It was less than a kilometre by foot, and he knew the way. He would have to cross Highway 140, also known as Yosemite Parkway. Travellers, tourists and locals alike used this road as a through route in order to access Yosemite National Park. On his way home from school, Stephen usually took a shortcut and passed through the forecourt of a local service station. In a televised interview with ABC News on the 14th of March 1980, less than two weeks after his escape, Stephen recalled the day of the abduction. He said that he was stopped by a man along the street just a few blocks from his house. He said that they asked if he or his mother wanted to donate something to a church. Stephen said, quote, I told him that my mother probably would want to, and so he offered me a ride home, end quote. He said that he had refused the offer at first. He continued, quote, I told him that my house was just a few blocks away and he asked me several more times and after a while I had taken the ride. 
and then the car pulled up and I got in. They passed the road that I live on and I had told them that they had missed the turn. They said, we'll just call your parents to see if you can stay the night. End quote. Hearing this, I can just imagine the terror he must have felt in the pit of his stomach as he did what he was asked to do and got in the car with two strange men. Adult strangers who had made it seem as if he didn't really have a choice but to go along with it. The all-encompassing horror as he watched them drive by the turn-off to his house. And then adding that he would be spending the night with them when this was so far from what any child would feel safe or comfortable doing. The interviewer asked him if at this stage he was afraid, to which Stephen replied, quote, Not that much, a little bit. End quote. Stephen then described how, on the night of his abduction, his abductor said that they had called his parents. According to his kidnappers, Kenneth Parnell and Edwin Irvin Murphy, Kay and Dell had allegedly given permission for Stephen, their seven-year-old son, to stay the night with the two adult strangers. On the second night away from his family, this ruse was repeated, and Stephen was informed once again that his parents had said that he could spend the night. At some point during that first week, Stephen said that one of his abductors, most likely Purnell, quote, went out and came back and said that he went to court and had gotten possession of me and that I was his, end quote. Purnell's reasoning for this sudden development, or at least what he communicated to Stephen, was that Stephen's parents couldn't afford all of the children that they had and didn't want him anymore. A vile lie that couldn't be further from the truth. But just one example of the gross manipulation, grooming and conditioning that Parnell would inflict on the boy over the course of the almost seven and a half years that he had Stephen in his possession. Rain, the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network, a US-based support organisation, describes grooming as, quote, Manipulative behaviours that the abuser uses to gain access to a potential victim, coerce them to agree to the abuse, and reduce the risk of being caught. End quote. The term grooming and some of the most common behaviours associated with it are far more recognisable to us now. And while it has definitely existed for possibly as long as humans have been alive, it was something that was not acknowledged or understood by the general public during the period that Stephen was abducted. The words that Purnell used when conveying the news of his entirely fabricated legal custody victory are quite telling. According to Stephen, Purnell spoke of having, quote, possession of him, and that Stephen was now his. While we are not in a position to diagnose Purnell, we can surmise that Purnell, at the very least, had narcissistic tendencies. Narcissists who are also abusers often view their victims as being an extension of themselves and their wants and needs supersede the wants and needs of their victims. This is something that frequently comes up in cases of familial abuse. Parnell told Stephen that he was now his father and within the first week insisted that Stephen call him dad. 
Stephen continued to do this for the duration of his time with Parnell. He also gave him a new name, a consequence Parnell told him of the legal custody agreement. From that day forth, he was no longer Stephen Stainer, but Dennis Gregory Parnell. Parnell allowed Stephen to keep the middle name Gregory, although if we refer to his initial statement to the police in March 1980, it would seem that this name was used so infrequently that Stephen had entirely forgotten it. Parnell enrolled Stephen in school using his real date of birth, and while perpetrating the lie of being father and son, moved him several times throughout the state of California, including Santa Rosa, Comche and Point Arena. Years later, a former teacher of Stephen's from his time in Comche, called Sandy, remarked that people like Ken Parnell, quote, they go to rural communities like Comche to hide out. And so it wasn't surprising that he moved from here down to Point Arena, as it was yet another place where he could be invisible, end quote. This next section references child sexual abuse. If you would prefer not to hear it, please skip forward approximately one minute. Purnell, a sexual predator, sexually abused Stephen for the first time within hours of the abduction. On the 17th of December 1972, 13 days after his abduction, Purnell raped Stephen for the very first time. According to statements given by Stephen to author Mike Eccles, Purnell abused Stephen more than 700 times over the course of his captivity. This included almost 100 rapes. Purnell had sworn Stephen to secrecy, and Stephen knew that he couldn't speak of the horrors happening to him at home with his so-called father to anyone. After a while, Purnell didn't even have to use overt threats of violence to control Stephen. His manipulation had worked exactly as he had intended it to. Stephen had settled into a life that was not his own and learned to live with the discomfort of being somewhere he did not belong, sharing a home with someone who was an ever-looming threat to him. It became his new normal. He was Dennis Purnell, Kenneth Purnell was now his father, and this was the reality of his life. Lies repeated often enough become the truth. Not the objective truth, of course, but the lived one. The one that we accept as our reality. We might struggle internally with a sense of dissonance because somewhere inside we know that what we have been told is not true, that it's not right, but it's either easier to go along with it or in many cases, the only option to keep ourselves safe. Stephen later recalled times when he attempted to leave the situation. However, he always returned to Parnell, not out of love, affection or loyalty, but because he truly believed that no one was looking for him. And even if they were searching for him, he didn't have the capacity, as the young and traumatised child that he was, to execute the necessary steps to make his way back home to his family. As Stephen grew to adolescence, Purnell enforced few rules on his conduct and behaviour. 
It should be noted here that as Stephen's body went through puberty, he aged out of Purnell's sexual preference, and the abuse became less frequent. Being a prolific child sex offender, Purnell began casting his net to ensnare other victims, some of which were Stephen's friends and classmates. Screenwriter J.P. Miller, who worked on the TV miniseries of Stephen's life story, I Know My First Name is Stephen, conducted a series of audio interviews. In these, Stephen spoke at length about his ordeal. In these tapes, released in the 2022 miniseries Captive Audience, a real-life American horror story, Stephen describes how Purnell had brainwashed him into believing that his parents didn't want him. He worried that if he left Purnell, that he may end up in a boy's home, or somewhere worse than where he currently was. He said at the time he thought, why not just leave well enough alone? He said that after that initial abduction, he just settled into his new life. As time progressed, he was happy. He says, I wasn't scared, I was happy. In another interview, Stephen revealed that he was always scared of him, him being Parnell. He said, a lot of times, you know, I felt violence towards him. Seemingly conflicting statements such as these reflect the complex nature of the trauma that Stephen endured during his captivity and point to the even more complicated relationship he held with his abductor. When developing the script for I Know My First Name is Stephen, J.P. Miller offered his insights into this situation. Miller identified an all-pervading fear that Purnell had instilled in Stephen. He describes the situation as he saw it as follows. When Purnell shows the slightest anger with him, there is an ever-present, all-pervading fear. And so, when Purnell then graciously gives him freedom to play with a dog, to run in the field, to have a good time, to come home late from school. It gives him a tie with Purnell that he never had with his own parents. This next section covers Purnell's background and prior criminal history. This includes sexual offences. If you would prefer not to hear this, please skip ahead. Kenneth Eugene Purnell was born in Amarillo, Texas in 1931. His parents were Cecil and Mary Purnell. He eventually moved to Bakersfield, California with his mother and three half-siblings. His mother Mary ran a boarding house and young Kenneth was known by local authorities as a juvenile delinquent frequently in and out of custody for crimes ranging from car theft to arson. In 1949, he married a 15-year-old girl, Patsy Jo Dorton. By 1951, Patsy was pregnant with a daughter. That same year, Purnell approached an 8-year-old boy brandishing a sheriff's deputy badge. He had acquired the badge months earlier from a Navy surplus store. He took the boy to a remote area where he sodomized him. Purnell was arrested in 1952 and was sentenced to almost four years in prison, which he served in San Quentin State Prison. A 1980 article in the Gadsden Times reported that a psychiatrist who examined Purnell related to one of his prior sexual offences described him as being a, quote, sexual psychopath. 
1957, his divorce from his first wife was finalised and he married for the second time later that year. In 1968, his second wife gave birth to his second child. In the 1960s, he was convicted of armed robbery and grand larceny in Utah. He served six years for those charges. It was after this conviction that his second wife filed for divorce. A Time article from March 1980 stated that Purnell had twice escaped from mental institutions. Purnell claims to have married for a third time, possibly around 1968, but there's no legal evidence that this happened. No marriage license for a third marriage actually exists. Purnell is also rumoured to have had not two, but three children, although it's not clear who he had this third child with, if they do indeed exist. Purnell's work history was sporadic. He held a series of menial and unskilled jobs over the years. The fact that he moved around so frequently led to him being referred to as a drifter in some media outlets. In March 1980, he was working as a night clerk at the Palace Hotel in Ukiah. He was also training to work security. He had gotten a second gig as a caretaker on a ranch in Port Arena, near Manchester, and as such was living rent-free in the remote one-room shack. This was the same isolated cabin that he had kept the two boys. Purnell had moved Stephen to the cabin sometime in mid to late 1979. This was approximately six to eight months before the teenager's discovery. He had told the ranch owner that he wanted to move his son away from drug taking and other delinquent behaviour that was happening at his school. Analysing this, there are probably two related reasons for the move. Firstly, Stephen was getting older and was building relationships in Conche with his friend group. This posed a greater risk of exposing Purnell's secret. And secondly, to fulfil Purnell's plans to procure another child in his preferred age range. Former Merced PD chief Pat Lunny tells us that there was a point during their time at the cabin when both Purnell and Stephen, quote, realised that Stephen was growing up and that he was no longer going to be able to be controlled by Purnell. Purnell wanted another kid, end quote. Which brings us to the second perpetrator. Edwin Irvin Murphy met Purnell when they worked together at Yosemite Lodge in Yosemite National Park. This resort was two hours away from Stephen's home in Merced. Sources who knew Murphy have described him as being naive, trusting and as possibly having a learning difficulty or a low IQ. Purnell allegedly told Murphy that he was an aspiring Christian minister. He convinced Murphy to help him find and save a little boy so that Purnell could raise the child in a religious household. In hindsight, this may seem absurd to us now, but Purnell was obviously convincing enough to have Murphy believe his story. On the day of the abduction, Murphy handed out gospel pamphlets. This was done under strict instructions from Purnell. The fact that their prey happened to be Stephen was incidental. But let's be clear here, this was premeditated. Both Purnell and Murphy had drafted a plan, including a ruse to get a male child to trust them enough 
to willingly get into Purnell's white Buick. They may even have planned to just snatch a child from the street if their subterfuge didn't work out. Purnell had a place to take the child he abducted. An isolated cabin in the nearby Cathy's Valley and a plan to keep him as a long-term captive. Stephen Flynn told ABC's 2020 programme that Purnell kept Stephen in his room at Yosemite Lodge for much of that first week. It's unclear whether the room and the cabin were in fact the same place or if Stephen was moved in the interim. Speaking to the same programme, former police chief Pat Lunny describes how Stephen was repeatedly given cough syrup in order to sedate him. Lunny believes that Purnell, quote, felt that the more confused and sedated that he could keep Stephen for the first few weeks, the better chance he stood to erase his connection back to his own family. End quote. Stephen would later say that Murphy showed him great kindness in the first week after his abduction. He said that he felt that Murphy was also being manipulated by Purnell. At the time of his arrest in 1980, Murphy was still working as a janitor at the Yosemite Lodge. All research suggests that Murphy and Purnell didn't have any substantial contact after 1972. From an outsider looking into this situation, I think it's likely that Murphy had served his purpose and was now a liability to Purnell. On the afternoon of Stephen's abduction, Kay was late to pick him up. When she arrived at his school, he wasn't there. He wasn't at home either. After a couple of hours, the dread and panic set in, and they called the police. The police began a street-by-street canvas. They erected roadblocks, interviewed potential witnesses and pooled their resources in an attempt to locate the missing seven-year-old. Every potential lead turned out to be a dead end. There were no credible leads, no eyewitnesses, no suspects, and police had no idea as to where Steve might be. It was as if he'd vanished into thin air. While Stephen was living with Purnell, his parents Kay and Dell tried to keep his story in the news media. As weeks, months and then years passed, they had flyers printed and distributed them to TV and radio stations and even schools. They hoped that these actions could generate a new lead in the investigation. Kay said that after a period of time, the media viewed Stephen's disappearance as being old news. She felt they were unwilling to promote the story outside of the initial weeks and months after he was reported missing. Stephen's absence weighed heavily on his family. His mother said that for the first few years, she made sure that the house was never unattended. Even if she had to go to the store, she made sure that someone was home to sit by the phone, just in case he called. His father, Dell, grew angry and then despondent. He became convinced that Stephen was dead. In captive audience, Stephen's sister Corey described how her father would drive around the hills in the county surrounding Merced. He was searching for freshly dug ground, disturbed earth, and ultimately a grave. In the same program, Kay discussed how, when something like this happens, it affects every aspect of your life. People did come forward with information. 
but any leads or information provided proved to be unfounded. In one case, Kay recalls a well-known sex worker who told her of a man she knew who had killed her son. The sex worker told the grieving mother that this man had cut Stephen up into tiny pieces and disposed of his body parts in the sewer system. In another incident, a man came forward and confessed to killing Stephen and burying his body on a hillside. The man said that he had contacted the family with this information as he wanted to provide them with the closure that he knew they were so desperately searching for. Police were obviously suspicious of these claims, but they had no leads and no other suspects. So they dug up the hillside that the unnamed man had directed them to. They didn't find any human remains and the man was released without charge. Losing a family member in the way that the Stainer family lost Stephen impacts everyone in different ways. As time moved on, Stephen's siblings understood that they couldn't speak of Stephen or bring up anything related to his abduction around their parents. They knew it was just too difficult for them to even discuss. In one of the audio interviews recorded by J.P. Miller, Stephen's older brother Kerry remarked that his father Dell, quote, wasn't the dad that he was before, end quote. He said that before his brother disappeared, he had viewed his dad as being strong. He said that Dell, quote, never trembled at all. And then suddenly, my little brother is gone, my dad crying all of a sudden. I never saw my dad have a tear in his eye in my whole life. And all of a sudden, life changed, end quote. Purnell and Stephen, now living as Dennis, presented as father and son in whichever communities they lived in. Between 1972 and 1976, they lived in a series of trailers, dingy motels and shacks, including some time spent in Santa Rosa. Purnell enrolled Stephen in Kiwana Elementary School Santa Rosa under his new assumed name. This school failed to request his records and thus a chance to identify Dennis as the missing boy that all of California was searching for, was lost. No one questioned their situation or suspected that something might be amiss. Stephen went to school in whichever town Purnell happened to move him to, although his attendance was sporadic. By mid-1976, Purnell had settled in Comche, a small, rural, unincorporated community in Mendocino County, California. Here, Stephen settled into Mendocino High School, a 30-minute bus ride away, and developed a friend group that he eventually became close to. For a time, he even had a girlfriend called Laurie. Stephen's friends later described him as being a shy and withdrawn child. They said he always kept something of himself back. He played sports and outwardly appeared to have freedoms that other teenagers could only dream of. Looking back, there were signs that something was not quite right, but no one was looking too closely. One friend recalls how none of Stephen's friends were ever allowed inside of his home. At the time, he lived in a sprawling series of connecting trailers. Stephen would always arrange to meet his friends at the end of the street. There were also signs of neglect. Stephen had very few clothes. His fingernails were always dirty. 
he had near-permanent rings of dirt around his ankles. These are all signs of neglect. But again, only if someone is paying attention. They were not. In captive audience, one of Purnell's neighbours in Comche stated that she had an intuition about Purnell and his character. She couldn't pinpoint exactly what it was, but she had a feeling about her neighbour that just wouldn't leave her. She forbade her daughter from ever going to his house. Another neighbour believed Purnell to be too lenient with his son, Dennis. That's the thing about masks. They're difficult to keep wearing. The mask that Kenneth Purnell wore to appear respectable in public worked as intended at least some of the time. When it didn't, there was nothing tangible to attach the intuition to. No obvious charge to answer to. Purnell was gifted a Manchester Terrier dog by his mother Mary, named Queenie. Mary allegedly knew nothing of Stephen's existence, and the two never saw each other. Queenie became a solitary sliver of light, companionship and unconditional love in young Stephen's life with Purnell. For 18 months of his captivity, another adult lived with Purnell, a woman named Barbara Matthias. Matthias was a divorcee with a son of her own named Lloyd. She allegedly met Purnell in late 1973 and for a time was paid 60 US dollars a month to babysit Stephen. Eventually, Matthias and Purnell lived together alongside Stephen. First, in a trailer park in Willits, 48 kilometres north of Ukiah, and later in a converted school bus in Fort Bragg, even further north. By 1975, perhaps emboldened by the successful abduction of Stephen and the fact that it seemed that he had hatched and executed the perfect plan, Purnell was on the lookout for another child to steal. He persuaded Matthias to attempt to lure a child into his car on his behalf, a similar situation to the one he'd previously used with Murphy. He needed a partner to act as his proxy in order to abduct a child. He was a coward and he refused to do this part himself. The child he targeted was a member of the Santa Rosa Boys Club and attended the club alongside Stephen. The abduction attempt was unsuccessful. A word of caution here. Again, there will be some brief references to child sexual abuse. Please skip ahead approximately one minute if you prefer not to hear it. Matthias parted ways with Purnell sometime around spring of 1976. She claimed that Stephen had told her that his mother had died when he was an infant and that she had seen a birth certificate for Dennis Gregory Purnell, so had no reason to believe that she was interacting with a kidnapped child. She said that Purnell treated Stephen like a son, occasionally spanking him for perceived misdeeds. Stephen said that while Matthias was in his life and in a relationship with Purnell, she raped him alongside Purnell a total of nine times. Journalist Ted Rowlands tells us that, quote, Stephen Stainer had a new father figure and it was Kenneth Purnell, who by day was his father and by night was his rapist, end quote. By early 1980, 
Purnell had successfully severed all ties with the life he and Stephen had shared in Comche. He was focused on acquiring another child and was determined that Stephen would help him achieve this goal. Stephen reportedly told him that he wouldn't help him. Previously, he had tried to use Stephen to lure other children into his trap. Thankfully, none had been successful. Stephen later said that he had deliberately sabotaged these attempts, which I think tells us so much about Stephen's character. On the 13th of February 1980, Purnell recruited a classmate and acquaintance of Stephen from a school in Point Arena. Sean Poorman was 14 years old. He was promised payment in the form of marijuana and money to be Purnell's willing accomplice. If Poorman showed any hesitation, Purnell reportedly threatened and coerced him to comply with his demands. Poorman was tasked with scouting for a male child for Purnell to abduct. According to testimony from Poorman, on the day in question, he noticed Timmy White, a five-year-old boy playing outside his home in Ukiah. Some reports claim that White disappeared while walking home from school, although this may simply refer to the last verified sighting of the child. Purnell watched the abduction unfold from a nearby car as usual, not wanting to get his hands dirty. It was a modus operandi that he had used again and again. Timmy refused to go with Poorman and attempted to retreat inside the house. In response, Poorman pushed him against a chain-link fence. Timmy wrapped his fingers tightly around the wire to root himself to the spot. Poorman peeled Timmy's fingers back to loosen his grip and dragged him to the waiting car. Purnell quickly dyed Timmy's light blonde hair brown and began the grooming process that he'd used so successfully on Stephen seven years earlier. He told the boy that his new name was Tommy and that Stephen, or Dennis as he was being called, was his new older brother. Purnell was manipulative enough to keep his lies close to the truth. Timmy's name becomes Tommy. Stephen's middle name stays as Gregory and he lets him keep his real date of birth. It's hard for children to keep track of the lies that an adult manipulator like Purnell wants them to tell. The closer the lies are to the reality of the situation, the less opportunities there are for them to mess up. Stephen was devastated. He had resigned himself to the fact that this was his existence. But his empathy was so great that he couldn't sit back and watch another child go through what he had already been through. Stephen and Timmy bonded over their shared experience, and the teenager tried to care for Timmy as much as he could. This is when the plan for escape began ruminating in Stephen's mind. He refused to condemn Timmy to a life of systematic abuse as he had already endured. He was determined to return Timmy to his parents. Prosecutors later claimed that there was no substantial evidence that Purnell sexually abused Timmy. But this goes against his established MO, and indeed the very reason for Timmy's abduction. It's not known whether this was due to lack of evidence or whether a decision was made to spare the five-year-old from having to testify to those charges. If the latter was the case, Authorities certainly did not extend the same empathy to Stephen. 
On Saturday, the 1st of March, 1980, Stephen finally had the opportunity to act. He waited until Purnell had left the shack to go to work and then put his plan into action. In the 16 days since Timmy had been missing, the Ukiah police force, consisting of 22 members, were working 18-hour days to solve his abduction. They could never have imagined that the boy that they had been searching so desperately for would walk directly up to them and help solve the mystery of his own abduction. It was 1am on Sunday the 2nd of March 1980 when Stephen was finally reunited with his parents. But it wasn't a private affair. Hundreds of onlookers comprising of neighbours, local residents, media and law enforcement crowded onto Betty Street. Hastily painted signs read, Welcome home, Stephen. A chorus of, There he is, there he is, vibrated through the rumbling crowd. Stephen emerged from a police car and walked towards his former home, clutching Queenie in his arms. His loyal companion had been retrieved from the one-room shack in Point Arena and reunited with the boy who loved her. Dell was the first to greet his son. Kay followed soon after. The family were not afforded any semblance of privacy to reconnect. Lights flashed all around them. Media perched on the rooftops of neighbouring buildings in the hope of snapping a photograph of Stephen that could be sold to the highest bidder. It seemed that everyone outside of the Stainer family had a stake in Stephen's return. And his homecoming, along with his story, were now public property. Standing outside the family home, Stephen pleaded with the press, quote, Please, I want to be alone with my family, end quote, before disappearing inside. Elsewhere, his abductor, Kenneth Parnell, had been arrested along with his accomplices, Murphy and Perman. Crime writer Pat Lalama said of the media frenzy, quote, Who could make this up? Every television network, every magazine cover, every movie executive. There wasn't one not interested. Stephen was hailed as a national hero. Within days of his re-emergence, a press conference was held outside the Stainer home. In this press conference, Stephen, along with his father, Dell, stood in the foreground close to the cameras. Stephen was flanked on either side by police officers, there to advise him not to comment on the pending criminal case. In the background, several steps behind the commotion, stood Stephen's older brother, Kerry. He wore a baseball cap and a strained expression on his face. He looked toward the camera, then to his brother, and turned his head before leaving the frame. TV reporter Ted Rollins tells ABC that, quote, Kerry, as the older brother, had a very strange relationship now with his younger brother Stephen, who was getting all of this attention and who was a different person, end quote. This indicates that perhaps Kerry was not as thrilled by his brother's return as we might have assumed. This is an important point that we'll return to later. Dell and Kay enrolled Stephen in school within days of his return. Stephen had no respite from his ordeal or space to process recent events. 
The news cameras followed everywhere. They were insatiable and held no boundaries for what they could or should film. They were intrusive and stalked the corridors and grounds of his school. Stephen was caught up in an invasive wave of media frenzy and even if he could steer his ship to calmer waters, they would continue to pursue him. On the 14th of March, Stephen travelled to San Francisco to appear on the TV programme Good Morning America. He appeared alongside his parents Kay and Dell and their family attorney Michael Hyder. Police extended Stephen's trauma, firstly by keeping him away from his family for longer than necessary and secondly for the media circus that they, unwittingly or not, invited into his life. The lack of judgment demonstrated here and the poor ethics of placing an abduction victim in front of news cameras before he'd even met with his family was an abhorrent act on the part of the Ukiah Police Department. Stephen was a minor who needed privacy, protection, support and understanding. He didn't need to be violated all over again and presented as fodder for the insatiable appetite of the media. As minors, both Stephen and Timmy were unable to consent to media interviews. It's doubtful that they were even asked. They shouldn't even have been interviewed by police without a parent or guardian present. Although at this time, in 1980, this may not have been a point of law in California. We don't know for sure who first invited the media into the police station that evening. Perhaps it was an overzealous police officer hoping to bask in the referred glory of the two children who had rescued themselves. Or maybe it was someone in Ukiah or elsewhere with political aspirations who wished to leverage the situation in their own favour. What we know is that this should never have been allowed to happen. Stephen struggled to slot back in with the family he had once known. In those early months after he was reunited, he probably felt as if he was living with a group of strangers, or at the very least, distant relatives. They may have had shared memories and genetics, but their paths had diverged so sharply that they hardly recognised each other. Stephen smoked and drank heavily to cope with what he had survived and what he was enduring. He became more of a risk taker than he had previously been and he suppressed the time of his abduction and really didn't like to talk about it. Years later, Stephen would comment on the difficulties he faced upon his return. He said, quote, I was almost a grown man, and yet my parents saw me at first as their seven-year-old. After they stopped trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it got better. But why doesn't my dad hug me anymore? I guess seven years changed him too. End quote. In a 2007 Insight episode for CNN, Kay reflected on the time following her son's return. She said that he, quote, came back different, very different, and we had a rough time getting used to having him home. End quote. Stephen said that he had been dealing with those memories ever since he came back. The public wanted to know what kind of motive would encourage someone like Purnell to abduct a child and keep them alive, fed and educated for so many years. Some media outlets opted to frame the story 
not of a sadistic paedophile who hunted and then abducted a child for his own sick needs, but of a man who desperately wanted sons and believed that this was the only way to get them. This poorly thought out motive promoted by some in the media didn't last long. During the police investigation, sexually explicit Polaroid photographs of Stephen as a child were found in Purnell's possession. This was leaked to the media. Stephen, again a minor at the time, was outed by the media as a victim of child sexual exploitation. Reporters demanded to know specific and intimate details of Stephen's abuse. As far as the news media were concerned, nothing was off limits in reporting on this case. In media interviews, reporters asked him outright if Purnell had sexually abused him. At first, Stephen denied this. He didn't want to discuss his abuse. It was something he hoped would never come up and that he would never have to face. It's believed that Stainer did undergo brief counselling, but was discouraged by his parents, particularly his father, Dell, who felt that Stephen didn't need therapy of any kind. Soon after Stephen's reunification with his family, former police chief Lunny recalls recommending counselling to Kay for Stephen. He said that Kay told him that she didn't believe that it was going to be necessary. Speaking to J.P. Miller, Stephen said, quote, I didn't want therapy. You know, there was a lot of suggestions of getting therapy from people. I just said no. I mean, I'm doing just fine. And so I don't feel I need it. End quote. One of Stephen's sisters speaking in 2007 said that Stephen's drinking led to him dropping out of school and having a strained relationship with his father. Eventually, he was kicked out of the family home. In December 1981, almost nine years to the day Stephen had been taken, Purnell's trial for Stephen's abduction began. Stephen was a key witness. The entire trial was televised, including Stephen's testimony. Speaking later to Miller, Stephen explained that he, quote, didn't want to get on the stand and didn't want to talk about it, end quote. He said, I fought it the whole way. Stephen Flynn believed that the adults in the situation thought that Stephen was a hero, but that none of the adults had to go to high school with Stephen. In captive audience, Kay recalled that the media attention was scary. She said it was just terrifying for him. The bullying at school was relentless. He was ostracised by many of the students at his new school. This could be for a lot of reasons. Maybe because he had no past with them or shared experiences. Or could just have been teenagers othering someone who wasn't one of them. The media scrutiny further set him apart from his peers. There's one clip that I came across when researching this story. It's a news clip of a TV reporter using the following words to describe Stephen's ordeal. The journalist says, quote, It is generally known that there was homosexual activity involved in Stephen's abduction. End quote. This is repulsive in and of itself. It implies that paedophilia is interchangeable with homosexuality, which, let's be clear, are not even in the same stratosphere as each other. It also insinuates that the abuse inflicted on Stephen was somehow not abuse and was simply a consensual relationship between a young, abducted child and his adult, convicted sex offender abductor. 
finally, it's a gross invasion of the privacy of the survivor of horrific experiences. It should never have been a talking point in the news media or the playground. We can't even begin to comprehend the layers of complex trauma Stephen endured. It's doubtful that even he fully understood it himself. As an aside, I'm a trained journalist with a journalism degree and a master's in communication. I've also worked as a freelance writer and editor and I've lectured in journalism at university level. That is just to say that I know this industry well. I also know its flaws. There's simply no excuse for the behaviour of the news media surrounding Stephen's case. They behaved disgracefully in pursuit of a story. They repeatedly violated Stephen's human rights and dignity. As journalists, we sign up to an ethical code of conduct relating to truth, accuracy and objectivity in all reporting. This is a standard clause when joining representative industry bodies and unions. Although in many countries, you can still work as a journalist without being a member of one of these organisations. Also, being a member doesn't automatically make you an ethical person. Ethics are a huge part of any journalism degree. I know that I took at least three separate modules on legal and ethical frameworks in journalism as part of my degree, all with written exams. Before the 1990s, most journalists didn't study journalism at college or university. Instead, they apprenticed at a newspaper or a TV station. They learned the ropes while working on the job. This isn't to excuse the extremely poor practices demonstrated by the journalists, editors and producers covering Stephen's case, but to point to the culture in those organisations. If you're a journalist trying to be noticed and move up a rung on the career ladder, you look to your peers for guidance. If you're a dolphin surrounded by sharks, perhaps you start to act like a shark, even if it's against your true nature. Eventually, you forget that you're a dolphin. In fact, when you see another dolphin out in the wild, you don't greet it, but instead start to hunt it for sport. If your industry peers are going in for the kill, then you do too, lest you be left behind. It becomes a damaging cycle that burns out good reporters and devastates the families and individuals impacted by predatory reporting. Now we'll talk a little bit about the trial. In June 1981, Purnell was convicted of the abduction of Timmy White and sentenced to seven years for the crime. Prior to Purnell's trials in 1981 and 82, California law allowed for sentences for multiple offences to be served concurrently. This meant that the offender could serve all of their sentences at the same time rather than one after the other. In February 1982, Purnell was found guilty of kidnapping and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. He was sentenced to seven years, but because of the laws in place at the time, 64 months of his sentence were stayed, as he was already serving a sentence for Timmy's abduction. The net result meant that he only had to serve an additional 20 months in prison for what he did to Stephen. This was in addition to the existing seven-year sentence from the previous year for Timmy's abduction. Almeida County Superior Court Judge M.O. Sabra oversaw the sentencing of both Purnell and Murphy for Stephen's abduction. 
During Purnell's sentencing, Judge Sabra said that this sentence is, quote, not in keeping with what the court would feel appropriate, but it is in keeping with the law. Murphy was sentenced to five years in prison with credit for 23 months already served. Murphy would be eligible for parole within just two years of his sentencing. To Murphy, Judge Sabra commented that the part he had in this crime was very significant. He remarked that we, quote, can take no comfort in the fact that you were directly involved only the first two months. Involvement for a day or two would have been enough, end quote. Murphy served just two years of his five-year sentence before being released. Purnell was not charged for the numerous sexual assaults on Stephen. This was partly because they occurred outside of Merced County's jurisdiction and the statute of limitations, which at the time was only three years. By the time of the trial, this had run out. Separately, Mendocino County prosecutors elected not to pursue Purnell for the assaults that had taken place in their jurisdiction. Barbara Mathias faced no charges for either the sexual assaults or the attempted abduction. She was never arrested. Sean Poorman faced a lesser charge than Purnell and was designated to serve time for Timmy White's abduction in a juvenile work camp. In 1983, Following Parnell's trial, the California legislature amended the state's sentencing laws to require that consecutive sentences be imposed for multiple kidnapping offences. This amendment also allowed for increased penalties for such crimes. The new law stated that sentences for kidnapping offences must be served consecutively rather than concurrently. Surprisingly, this change arose not specifically from Stephen's case but from Timmy's, as his trial and sentencing had come first, therefore setting the precedent. Purnell only served five years of his total sentence. In January 2003, Purnell was arrested for attempting to buy a four-year-old boy. By this time, he was receiving 24-hour nursing care in his apartment in Berkeley, California. He had recently had a stroke. He also had emphysema and was diabetic. Parnell had recruited his caregiver sister, Diane Stevens, to buy him a child for 50 US dollars. Diane, aware of Parnell's sordid history, contacted authorities. Pretty soon, a sting operation was set up. In February 2004, Parnell was sentenced to 25 years in prison under California's Three Strikes Law. He died in a prison hospital of natural causes in January 2008. He was 76 years old. At some stage in the mid-80s, Stephen was approached to sell the rights to a story for a television miniseries. He was paid approximately 30,000 US dollars. The two-part miniseries, I Know My First Name is Stephen, was written by J.P. Miller and Cynthia Whitcomb and directed by Larry Ellican. Actor Karin Nemec, who would later find fame playing the titular character in the TV series Parker Lewis Can't Lose, played Stephen as a teenager. Luke Edwards played the younger Stephen and covered the period around the time of his abduction. Todd Eric Andrews played the teenaged Kerry Stainer. 
Stephen was very happy to participate in the TV miniseries, both to tell his side of the story and to provide financially for his family. The Stainer family were heavily involved in the development of the TV series. Stephen even guest starred as a police officer in his own homecoming scene in the series. By the time the miniseries had aired in May 1989, Stephen had married Jodie Edmondson and had two children, Ashley and Stephen Jr. He was working at a pizza shop. He also worked with groups that searched for missing children and held talks with children to warn them about the dangers of speaking to strangers, personal safety and some of the warning signs to look out for. On Saturday the 16th of September 1989, while riding his motorcycle home from work, a driver ran a stop sign and overtook Stephen's vehicle, causing a fatal collision. His sister Corey recalls being on her way to work while Stephen was on his way home. She passed the carnage of the accident and saw paramedics performing life-saving measures on someone. She had no idea that it was her own brother, the brother she was losing for a second time. Stephen didn't survive his injuries. The driver fled the scene but was later identified as 28-year-old Antonio Loera. Loera was sentenced to three months for felony hit-and-run driving, with a 12-month probation added. An earlier vehicular manslaughter charge had been dropped. Stephen left behind a wife and two young children. The 41st Primetime Emmy Awards were held on Sunday the 17th of September the day after Stephen lost his life. I Know My First Name is Stephen was nominated in four categories. Despite critical acclaim and multiple nominations, the miniseries failed to win in any of its nominated categories. Over 500 people attended the funeral. Timmy White, now a teenager of 14, was a pallbearer and helped to carry Stephen's body. It wasn't lost on those in attendance that Timmy was the same age that Stephen had been when he courageously risked his life to save them both. A staff writer for a local newspaper, the Lodi News Sentinel, wrote of Stainer's life and legacy just weeks after his death. They said of Stainer that there is a compelling urge to think of him as the 14-year-old Stephen who returned to his family, not the 24-year-old man who died on his way home from work and was the catalyst for a national wave of attention to the problems of abducted and abused children. In his later years, Stephen had begun working with organisations supporting abused children. His case also opened a national dialogue on child sexual abuse that had previously only been whispered about behind closed doors. In 2010, sculptor Paula B. Slater was commissioned to create a life-size sculpture immortalising Stephen Stainer and Timmy White's dramatic escape from captivity. The sculpture is on public display in Applegate Park, Merced. Additionally, a second sculpture was commissioned of both boys to be displayed in Ukiah. Speaking to the Seattle Times in 2007, Corey Stainer, Stephen's sister, said, quote, we can say he had a rough life, but it didn't even last long enough to see where it would have gone." End quote. Timmy White entered law enforcement and in 2005 became an LA County Sheriff's Department deputy. 
Like Stephen before him, Timothy gave lectures to children on his experiences. He married and had two children, but sadly died from a pulmonary embolism in April 2010. At the time of his death, he was only 35. Stephen and Timmy were both too young to have experienced what they did, and both of their lives were tragically cut short. This case is one that I've carried with me for decades. This was my first foray into true crime. One of my most vivid memories from childhood was of huddling on the couch with my younger sister and cousin. We were all under the age of 10. Too young to watch this programme and definitely too young to comprehend the implications of what Stephen must have gone through. And yet we were hooked and dutifully returned the following evening as my mother and aunt tuned in for the story's conclusion. It left an indelible scar on the three of us that we have shared ever since. I remember the devastation that I felt at the end when I realised that Stephen had died and the unfairness of it all. The fact that it was a true story made it all the worse. At the time, I couldn't understand why Stephen had to die. After all he had been through in life, I still feel that way. Even then, I understood that we don't all get to have a happy ending, even when we deserve one. This episode is being released in September 2023, and this week marks 34 years since the day of Stephen's death. It's fitting for many reasons that this case opens this season. Stephen's legacy outlived him in the outreach work he did, in sharing his story with the world, and in his children. For the Stainer family, the nightmare wasn't over. They would have to once again live through the unthinkable, but this time from the other side of the courtroom. In continuing the Stainer family story, the next episode takes a look at the case of Kerry Stainer, Stephen's older brother who became a dangerous killer, hunted by police, the FBI, and even suspected by his own family members. Join us in two weeks for the next episode. This podcast was written, researched, produced, and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick. All episode sources can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com. Please share this episode with anyone you think might enjoy it. It really helps to let people know about the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode.